So Money episode 801, Sarah Jenks, founder of Live More, Way Less. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. If you've ever struggled with your weight, you may have thought to yourself, you know what, life would be better if I was just thinner or life is 20 pounds away. Welcome back to So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Today, I'm interviewing Sarah Jenks, and she had these exact thoughts, these exact voices running through her head years ago as she was at the crossroads of her life. Today, she's an entrepreneur, nutrition, and life coach, and the founder of Whole Woman, a monthly online membership for women seeking the answers to questions like, who am I and why am I here? She's also the creator behind Live More Way Less, the most popular online emotional eating program. After struggling with her own body issues her entire life, Sarah decided to create a program to help other women overcome those same challenges. Sarah's community is made up of over 100,000 women. We talk about the triggers for overeating and overspending. They are similar. Life living on a 23-acre farm. How the decision to move there after living an urban life was a bit of fate for Sarah and her family and the triumphs and challenges of being the female breadwinner in her marriage. Here we go. Here is Sarah Jenks. Sarah Jenks, welcome to So Money. It's great to finally connect with you. Oh, Farnoosh, thank you so much for having me. I can't wait for today. I'm struggling with where to begin, honestly. I, I have so many questions for you as a, mm-hmm. as an entrepreneur, as a mom to three children. You have also created a transformational program that I believe the most popular online emotional eating program called Live More Way Less. Yes. And you're dedicated to helping women kind of, uh, you know, reach their pinnacle, really discover who they want to be, what makes them feel full. Mm-hmm. Uh, without maybe adding on the pounds. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, what, what drew you to this area of work? Um, mm. what, what was really the calling for you as you were, I'm sure, at a crossroads at some point in your life as we all arrive there, um, and you chose to really lean into helping women, particularly with their weight? Yes. So it's been a really interesting journey because – Um, especially in the past five years since I've had kids, my work has really shifted in ways that, um, have surprised me. So I started on, I started working with emotional eaters because I was an emotional eater. I think my whole life, I went to my first Weight Watchers meeting when I was 10 and I grew up with this belief that my life would be better if I were thin and the issue that I had was I had no quote unquote willpower. So I could actually never stick to a diet or lose weight. And so my life always felt 20 pounds away. Um, and it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties that I had a really terrible binge while I was in the middle of a juice cleanse. And I, I was sneaking chocolate in the supply closet of my ad agency. And I actually threw some in the trash and I went back to my desk 
And it was like an alien took over my body. There was nothing I could do to stop myself from going back to the supply closet, fishing the chocolate out of the trash and eating it. And in that moment, I realized, okay, something's really wrong with me. This isn't just about sticking to a diet, you know, and I, I got to work on figuring out what was really going on. And I realized that I was addicted to food. Like some people are addicted to alcohol or smoking or shopping or spending too much money or, you know, all those things that I'm sure you're familiar with. And what I, I realized that I was waiting for my life to change you know, and when my body changed, but I realized my life was never going to change unless I actually just changed my life. And I just really started with having fun. I took voice lessons. I took dance classes. I, um, started a meditation group and all of a sudden I wasn't eating ice cream at night anymore. And I wasn't eating an entire package of cookies because I was being fed in these other ways. Um, I, during that process of sort of discovering how I was an emotional eater, I lost 30 pounds and I decided to go into the health coaching space. And I ended up coming to this program that I developed called Live More Way Less because I had spent my whole life thinking I needed to weigh less in order to live more. But actually, the opposite is true. So I created that program in 2011 and it totally blew up and went so insanely well. And then I had kids. I've had three kids in the past four and a half years. And I really had to take a look at the word way less and weight loss and what that was really about. And what I realized was so important for all of us to get was that there we have this patriarchal brainwashing around this belief system that we have to look a certain way in order to be happy. And where I was seeing it come up in my work was every time I would tell one of my clients, stop trying to lose weight, they would say, but Sarah, if I, if I stop trying to lose weight, then I'll eat whatever I want. And that's when the, the sort of aha went off in me. And I realized, oh, we've been trained to think that the only reason to take care of our bodies is to look a certain way. And that is a really damaging belief system because it's stealing from us all of this knowledge about our energy, how we feel in our body. And most importantly to me, that we, we live in our bodies. These are our homes and these are our sacred temples. And so what I realized was when I got pregnant, that, oh my gosh, my body is a gateway to life. And I really understood how sacred my body was. And then I realized that the cleaner I ate, the more intuitive I was. And the healthier I was, the more um, I was a better manifester. And the closer I was able to get to my truth and my soul and who I am. And so then food and spirituality ended up becoming sort of one in the same. And my body and my spiritual practice ended up becoming one in the same. And where that led to was really understanding that women are so exhausted by being someone they're not all day that it's leading us to really eat at the end of the day. So now I've really been focusing on how do I help women understand who they are and also feel okay to be that person in our daily life, which is 
I think the hardest part, having the courage to actually be who we are at the grocery store, you know, at the Thanksgiving table, um, that's can be super challenging. So that's the story. That's a, <laughs> an incredible story. I've been taking notes and I've been writing down some of the things you've been saying, like, it's so true. I think that you really did capture the mentality and the the the, the stories that we tell ourselves, the whispers, my life mm-hmm. would be better if I was just thinner. Life is 20 mm-hmm. pounds away. And we do blame things like willpower and what you identified as a food addiction is spot on. And mm-hmm. a lot of it does have to do with our um, you know, feeding our emotions, so to speak. And what, what I'm curious because, you know, I, with the money mind that I have, yeah. how, how much of a parallel is there in your client work? Do you see women who arrive where they have weight issues that, and also they have financial yeah. challenges? Are there correlations? If you're, you know, what comes first? Because I feel like if you are stressed, if you have emotional concerns about your money Mm -hmm. that you may turn to food as a way to comfort yourself. Oh yeah. It's, it's so related. And I found for me when I was going through a diet pattern. So if I was restricting my food, I would overspend on money. So it's the same conversation of having enough and being restricted and what freedom feels like to the individual. So for me, I always felt like, um, and this goes back to this whole conversation of, are we feeling free to be ourselves? So because I live in America in 2018, I was feeling like I couldn't come out as the like spiritual wild woman that I am for so long. And so my daily existence was being boxed up. And so food was the way I would rebel or spending money was the way I would rebel. Cause it would give me this like, Ooh, I'm being bad here. I'm doing something crazy. Um, or food would help me sort of connect to my body more, connect to my wild self, you know, or I'd go spend money and I'd get this rush. And what I realized I had to do was I had to really look at, okay, where are the emotional ways that I'm holding back? Where am I putting myself in a box? And I realized where I was doing it was I was pretending I wasn't a spiritual person. I was pretending that I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom when I didn't. I was pretending that I was totally fulfilled with kids and a cute husband and a house when I wasn't. And so I was sort of, it was like, you know, when the top is on a pot and it just has to explode a little bit to let the pressure out, Mm -hmm. I would let the pressure out with food or let the pressure out with money. There's a post on your site. I want to read it that you wrote in your words because I think it's going to hit and it's going to touch us all. I, I feel like it's so relatable. So you say there's this thing that happens when I walk into anthropology. Oh, yeah. It's like the clothes start pumping heroin into my veins and I just can't stop. Yeah, I've been there. I want to buy everything and stopping myself short sends me directly to a place of deprivation and depression. I deserve the clothes, I tell myself. And shopping with abandon makes me feel free and wealthy. But when I get home, I have a crazy hangover, feel guilty and stuck, a lot like I used to feel with a pint of ice cream. Mm -hmm. Yep, it's so true. You know, and... I had to, I had to really look at what is the feeling that I'm getting when I'm spending a thousand dollars in anthropology 
what's that feeling? Addiction I, is addiction is addiction, right? Yeah, Whether it's clothing absolutely. or food or cigarettes or drugs. I mean, there's levels of it. There's variations. Yeah. But I think like the thing, the emotional place that you describe you're in is 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 similar to what maybe someone else would say with some sort of other kind of addiction. Absolutely. And I, I always think it's because, I mean, we there are genes for addiction for sure. And I think that addiction is also triggered and stems from the fact that we are depriving ourselves in another way. Mm-hmm. Wow. You have talked about how with your program, there have been women who've come to you and say, like, I want help, but I can't afford it. Or I, I just, I can't, I only want to maybe take the, the free advice. And what's your philosophy around investing in yourself, especially when it comes to your health and your, um, your physical well-being and your, and your mental well-being? Yes. So, um, our friend Kate, who connected us, Kate Northrup, she has this really great saying where she says, let your spending be a prayer for what you want more of in your life. And I absolutely love that. And um, I think it is so important because money, when you invest in something, it creates the container and the dedication that is outside of ourselves. So I started thinking about it like this is an extreme example, but when we get married, we have a marriage contract so that when we start fighting, we don't just leave because we have a contract. There's something, there's a thing outside of us that holds us together. I feel like when we spend money on ourselves on a program, that's the contract that holds us to our promise that maybe in the moment we felt really good about, but because we're human, we're going to waver, but it's the money that keeps us tied to it and keeps us in the container. And I think as a business owner, you know, what's really been important for me is, you know, when I started doing live more, way less, it was $1,500 a pop. Um, now it's only 500, but I've also created a membership program. That's only $35 a month called whole woman, which is more of my spiritual program and my place for ongoing coaching. And so I think it's also important, you know, when you're charging money to make sure that you have, um, a lot, like sort of a range of what you're offering so that people who do come from different, um, economic situations can, can participate. That's great. And of course, as a business person, you arrive here because you've done the good work of scaling. Yes, <laughs> so, exactly. <laughs> and um, speaking of your business, I know that when you transitioned to starting your own company, it was hard. You talked about yeah. how it was, it, you cried all the time. You were worried about your, um, your financial situation. Your husband had about 10,000 in medical school loans. So it was, it was tough. And so talk a little bit about that transition and then we'll get a little into more of your personal financial perspective and lifestyle, but take us back to that moment and how you, how you thrived. Yeah. So I'm a risk taker at heart and I, I'm a Sagittarius. I have a lot of Sagittarius in my chart. So I quit my advertising job cold Turkey before I had done anything with my business. And, um, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband loaned me $10,000 to start my business. And I spent a lot of it on, you know, website materials and business cards and all those sorts of things. And that one, that one website I only used for like three months. So that was a total waste of money. But I, um, I was so, I was really in the pressure cooker. I was so stressed out that it was hard for me to have the creative energy 
to really put myself out there. But I will say that, um, I wish that I had a little bit more of a bridge. I did end up getting a lot of side jobs to help support me in starting the business. But the the turning point really happened when I really dialed down who I was serving. So when I got engaged, I opened a company called The Breathtaking Bride that helped brides with emotional eating issues before their wedding. And it was when I did that, that Martha Stewart wedding magazine interviewed me. I had workshops booked at every single bridal boutique in New York. I was interviewed for the knot, um, a couple like New York, New York brides. And so that's when things really took off, but I was seeing all of my clients in person and one-on-one. So it wasn't very scalable. And then my husband got a residency position, surgical residency position in San Francisco. So I was basically just leaving my entire business behind in New York because no one wanted to work with me on the phone after I was doing it in person. So I had to totally rebuild when I moved to San Francisco and I ended up investing $20,000 to work with Marie Forleo and her mastermind that she used to run. And that she's who taught me how to create an online, um, an online program, an online company and things just really grew from there. And that was in 2011. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, you live on a 23 acre farm. I do. What, I do. Why? <laughs> why? That's a great question. So two years ago, this is a great story. I think you're going to love the story. So two I, years ago, it's, I'm in for a treat. <laughs> um, two years ago, I had been doing live more by less for five years. It felt like I was ready to have like another business baby. If that makes sense. Um, I loved the work but there was something else that was brewing in me. And I had had two kids in a year and a half. So I got pregnant with my second when my son was nine months old, which was wild. Oh my gosh. Yep. And I, was gonna, I was trying to do the math there. Three kids under oh yeah. four and a half years. I was like, did you have any chance to, you know? Not really. And take a break. Through, no. And through that whole process, I was supporting our family because my husband was in residency. So I was the primary breadwinner in San Francisco, which is the most expensive city in the country with two kids under two. And I mean, talk about a pressure cooker. That was very hard, but it sort of put me to the fire because I had to make a choice about, um, like where I was going to go next, because I would, we knew we wanted to move to new England. Jonathan was going to get a real job for the first time in 11 years. That was really exciting for me. And I felt like I had space to really think about what I wanted to do. So I wrote this 15 page document and I made this five-year plan. And I said, in five years, I want to have this huge property outside of Boston where I bring women together. We talk about the divine feminine and spirituality and taking care of our bodies and motherhood and being real and discovering who we are. I want to have a place that we can like circle in the woods at night under the full moon. I want to gather in open fields. I want to build a yurt. I want to have a stream and I want to live on the property. So two weeks later, My husband and I are looking for small three-bedroom farmhouses outside of Boston. We forget to put the budget into Trulia. And I mean, like talk about a great lesson for life to not (laughs) put like a ceiling on it, (laughs) right? So we see this 
house. And it's this sort of funky 70s looking house on a lake. But anytime I see a lake, I want to check out what's going on. And I click on it. And it's literally almost in order of what I had written. Long, windy driveway with trees, big open fields, 10 acres of forest. And then there's this building that looks like a yurt, but it's a four season, gorgeous, round temple building. And my jaws on the floor, I have goosebumps head to toe. I start to cry because I'm seeing my vision so literally right in front of me. And there are not yurts in New England. Like this is not a thing that happens around here. So (laughs) I, um, we went to bed. This was late at night. I woke up totally buzzing and I have a spiritual practice of sitting and meditating and praying every morning. And so I asked in my meditation, what do I do? Because it was way outside of our budget. And I heard Google it. So I Googled the name of the farm. Turns out it was owned by my high school therapist, who was one of the first Whoa. people to ever have ever help me with my body image issues. <gasps> I'm okay. getting goosebumps. I right? really total full circle. So I email her, I find her email address and I said, I don't know if you remember me, but I, so this is what I'm doing now. I see this property. I see how special it is. I know this is a magical place because she was doing spiritual work, very similar to the work that I had started doing in San Francisco, but like kind of behind the scenes a little bit. Cause I was still in my like spiritual broom closet. And I just, I was like, I just have to come and see you and see the land and see what happens. And I made a special trip from San Francisco to New England in December. This was like a month after I saw the property and maybe not even a month. It was like two weeks. And as soon as I step foot on the land, I start to cry and she takes me on a walk and we come into, um, this separate building and I'm just, I'm in awe. And I just said to her, I don't know how I'm going to make this happen, but I know that I meant to be here. Turns out she had sent up smoke signals two weeks before I emailed her. So this is just like a really great example about how money and magic are so connected and how I just had to be, I had to put it out there in order for it to come to me. So anyways, one thing led to another, I was getting so much feedback from people that were close to me. It's too much money. You're totally crazy. Don't, don't do this. The land is too much. You want to have another baby. Jonathan's just starting his work, you know, all of the logistical things. And I had to come back to my truth and back to my soul and spend time with my friends that said, Sarah, this is yours. This is for you. This is crazy magic. You just wrote all this stuff down and here it is. So what we ended up doing was, did it um, scare you that you were like, it scared me. Were you not trusting yourself to think, did I actually want these things? Of course. Of course. I questioned myself every day and I had to constantly come back to my practice of putting my butt on the floor and being in prayer and emptying out and using my magical tools like tarot and temple space and all this stuff that I I teach this in whole woman. Whole woman came out of this whole process because I was waffling all the time. And like, is this real? Is this not? Is this real? Is this not? And then there was the whole money piece, which is why I'm glad we're so talking, so like talking about it. So what I did was I I, we told them what we could do. And I said, look, this is how much we can spend on the house. We cannot do any more. Can we buy the rest from you in five years? And they said, yes. 
I mean, well, that never go. happened. There you go. Yep. So there was some serious creative. It financing. was never. This house was not escaping you. It was not escaping me. It kept um, Yeah, exactly. And but there still had to be a whole lot of faith because a big part of the plan of buying this house was that I would be able to make money here on the land and not be online all the time anymore, which is what I had been doing. So, and everyone kept telling me, I, you know, I had this dream of, of leading full moon women's circles here at the property. And everyone kept saying, Sarah, no one in New England's going to want to go to a full moon circle. Like, what are you doing? This is the worst business plan ever. Sure enough, I put up a couple posts on Instagram about having a full moon circle and it's packed 75 women first time. Like we could barely find places to sit in the building. It was amazing. And so things have really grown from there. And it was just a really beautiful lesson of, of faith, but also being so we had to also be really clear about the numbers and smart about that. Also, you described being the breadwinner, the primary breadwinner at one point in your marriage. And I'm just, I'm always curious to learn more about how couples communicate around money and, you know, manage the money as the incomes shift and the roles, the financial roles change. And, and so is there a story that really kind of captures that essence for you guys or any lessons you've learned along the way? Absolutely. So it was really empowering for me to be the breadwinner in my relationship because it really, from the get go, cleared any sort of gender roles that might have been happening in our relationship. Um, based on, you know, both my husband and I grew up with stay at home moms who were very equal in their marriages, but they both really took the brunt of, um, child raising. So I knew, and I was already spending most of the time with the kids anyway, because Jonathan was working 90 hours a week. And I was able to really stand in this truth that, okay, I can make all the money and be with the kids all the time. That means that men can totally make all the money and be with the kids half of the time. So when anyone would come to me and be like, oh, my husband works so hard. I'm like, so do I. And I... Mm -hmm. I make it happen. So it just, it may, helped me understand my, my capacity. And I really saw how, you know, Jonathan would, was always asking, what can I do around the house? That's helpful because he would get home at nine o'clock at night. And so what I would do is I wouldn't do a single dish all day and he would come home at home at nine and do the dishes for 45 minutes to an hour because, you know, there was two crazy kids and me, and we were making a huge mess. Um, and you know, he just did everything with the house, all the logistics, all the bills, um, all the dishes, everything so that there was pieces that I didn't have to do. Now, when things sort of started to shift, it was so interesting because Jonathan started making more money and he had a lot more time when he became, um, a full-time, you know, attending. So, It was, there was some, like, it was hard because in the beginning, I felt like he owed me. I was like, okay, dude, I have been pulling my weight for six years and you should, you just need to do everything. And we had, there was a lot of fighting in the first couple months to sort of figure out our, our place in the whole thing. And we definitely had moments where he was like, well, if you're going to make less money, are you going to do these other things more? And I was like, no, 
I'm not because we have to figure out what we actually want to do. And we had to then switch to a place instead of one person sort of supporting the other, where we had to decide what do we want to do? How do we want to be parents? How do we want to be breadwinners? And then figure out how we were going to delegate the rest. Um, so for an example, we both really don't like cleaning the house. And so we had to figure out, okay, how can we each make a little bit more money so that we can hire someone to support us in that way? So there was a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of math, figuring out how we can get all the boxes checked and eyes dotted, um, with both of us, you know, with both of us working and both of us having time, it wasn't so clear anymore. That makes sense. Yes. And what I'm hearing from your story and what I I firmly believe this too, is that when you're in a relationship, it's very easy to slip into this mentality that whoever's making more uh, clearly doesn't have as much time as the other person to dedicate to household responsibilities. But that right. money doesn't equal time, no, nor, does it it doesn't. E- nor does it equal interest in doing exactly. as you said, certain things. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've talked about this at length. I've written books about, you know, female breadwinners, but it, the yep. thing is like, the day that I start to think that my husband's work is less valuable or less uh, stressful on him or or less uh, time consuming because of the paycheck that is smaller than my paycheck, mm-hmm. it's we're we're losing. Exactly. We're going to so start agree. fighting. There's going to be a lot of resentment. And so I need to just value him as a worker and he values me as a worker or whatever. It, you know, it's not about the time or the anything else. It's just that this is what we're doing in our professional lives. The paycheck is what it is. Mm-hmm. So let's just do what we want to do. Like you said, establish your goals, your values and mm-hmm. and outsource what you don't want to do. Exactly. And, and the outsourcing takes time and a lot of planning. Like I was having a moment today because we have our two older kids in full-time daycare and I have a full-time nanny for my baby. And this is way more childcare than most people have. However, this is what was important for me to feel the freedom that I wanted to feel and have the support I needed in the house. So today my daughter is homesick from school and normally I would have had to have canceled our interview, but because I have a nanny, I can continue to do my work and I'm going to go spend, you know, the rest of the afternoon with her. But this dream that I'm experiencing right now, I had five years ago and it's taken me this long to work towards it. And I think that's really important. Um, and for new, so I want to say one thing about childcare because it's something that is, I'm really passionate about is, um, you know, for the three years that we had kids when Jonathan was in residency, our nanny was making more than Jonathan was. And so it just really showed me that it can't just be about one partner's salary. It again goes to the values and supporting the partner and doing and them being a whole person. Because if we were following the old rules of like, let's say I was making less than a nanny, then I would have just quit my job. Yes. But I wasn't telling Jonathan to quit his job Thank because you. I, he was making an investment in his future. He was following his calling and he was, you know, he was working towards something in the future. And what I see with a lot of women in my field is if they aren't making, a, you know, more than their nanny within like two months, their partners are saying, this isn't going to work. You need to quit. And I just, I supported Jonathan for six years to invest in his career. And I feel like women deserve the same, regardless of what their career is. 
I a thousand percent agree. I, I've I've been on this um, campaign as well in my personal yeah. life with meeting other women and on this podcast, and it's really. It's really gotten me to a place where I want to say something big about this. And you really captured it well, where I feel as though women are, we're really shortcutting ourselves. We're underestimating ourselves. We're just, a lot of us who opt out of the workforce, it's it's not a choice because money is a serious thing. I mean, when the cost of childcare exceeds your paycheck, it's a hard stop that you make and you do that math. And it's very hard to convince yourself that it's going to be okay to continue working at a deficit which is essentially what you're doing. Yeah. But you know what? You, as a society, we're quick to take on, you know, uh, $80,000 in student loans. Right. Why? Because we believe in the investment. We believe that this is going to help us propel our careers and we will make that money back. Yes. And it's a risk, but we do it. We're okay with it. We've conditioned ourselves to think that this is okay. We haven't arrived there yet at accepting the cost of childcare as an investment. Right. And And I want us to think like that. Really think it is. And I think it also stems from we need to give ourselves more credit for accomplishing our dreams. And the fact that that does take some time. And but we have to learn how to stick to them and be dedicated to our souls and what we desire at any cost. I love talking to you. I'm so sorry that we're almost wrapped up here. But before we go, um, Sarah, I would love to ask yeah. you some so money fill in the blanks. Yeah, this love it. Just, let's, let's end on a lighter, <laughs> more spontaneous <laughs> note. Uh, but this has all been so, so powerful. All right. First up, if I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say 100 million bucks, the first thing I would do is? Renovate my house. Really? Oh, yeah. Do you, what, what, what would you start with the kitchen, the bathroom? I would do the, I would do the whole thing. <laughs> the whole thing. Needs so it wasn't the dream house after all. No, it wasn't. It was the dream temple and the dream property. Um, and we, but I could see I'm a, I'm a total visual house person. And so actually having a house to work on was better than moving into something that was perfect. Because I'm just, that's like where my creativity and Yeah, I mean, where are you going to find a temple? Out. Where are you going to find a temple? On a where lake? are you going to find a temple? Exactly. Um, <laughs> one thing I spend my money on that makes my life better or easier is? Childcare. Hello. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> one thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is? How to save more and investing. You know, one thing I forgot to ask you, which is uh, my bad, what would you say is your scariest money moment, Sarah? Our sponsor is Chase Slate, and together we want to know because it's almost Halloween and we thought it'd be fun. Oh my gosh, my scariest money moment was when I had, I was eight months pregnant. I had a 16 month old baby, and I didn't know how I was going to pay our rent the next month, the month I was due, or my business team. Can you imagine? No. There's a light at the end of this tunnel. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So basically I, um, pulled out a bunch of stops, prayed a lot, launched, uh, like relaunched live more way less, made some money. And then I fired most of my team. Oh, there you go. Downsized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah downsized. <laughs> All right. And last but not least, I'm Sarah Jenks. I'm so money because I'm Sarah Jenks. I'm so money because I believe in myself and I take a ton of financial risk. And, uh, Man, are we thankful for that. You're helping so many women, Sarah. Such an inspiration. Thank you for your candid, honest, insightful interview and wishing you continued success. 
Thank you, Parnoosh, so much for having me. This was such a joy. To learn more about Sarah, her website is sarahjanks.com, J-E-N-K-S. Her newest program is also available now. Go to wholewoman.me. She's also on Instagram, at Sarah Jenks. If you missed any of this, don't worry. Head over to somoneypodcast.com. We have all the audio, the transcripts, the links. And if you have a question for me for the Friday episode, click on Ask Farnoosh and you can leave an audio or text. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. Money.